Hello, and welcome to We Want the Airwaves, an investigation into DIY radio in New York City. My name is Tom Tenney, and for the next half an hour, I'll be your guide to the world of DIY radio and microbroadcasting, a term that describes the operation, licensed or not, of low-power radio transmitters under 100 watts, which was, until recently, the minimum amount of power one needed in order to become licensed by the FCC. I'll examine the question of whether new technology is causing a migration from microbroadcasting to internet radio, and how this change of media might affect the way we experience a medium that's been with us for over a century. I'll be talking to former and current New York City radio pirates, current DIY internet radio broadcasters, and about a new law, the Local Community Radio Act, that might allow microbroadcasters to legitimately operate low-power FM stations in their communities. First, though, let's talk a little bit about how pirate radio and microbroadcasting grew up. Radio was invented by amateurs, by tinkerers, and for the first two decades of the 20th century, the airwaves were free terrain for both amateur and commercial use. With the Radio Act of 1927, the government became the de facto gatekeepers of the airwaves and created the Federal Radio Commission, or the FRC, later to become the FCC. In 1930, George Fellows gained notoriety by becoming the first person to be prosecuted under the act for broadcasting without a license. But it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that unlicensed broadcasters began to infiltrate the airwaves in any significant numbers. There were a number of reasons for this. One was that in 1980, the FCC increased its minimum power requirements from 10 watts to 100 watts. This change effectively barred many localized and low-budget radio operators from operating legally simply because the costs involved in setting up for 100 watts are exponentially greater than setting up for 10. Some of these broadcasters still felt, however, that they had a First Amendment right to use the public airwaves, and they stayed on the air as pirates. Some pirates were more radical than others. Black Liberation Radio was started in the mid-80s by Dwayne Reedus in Springfield, Illinois, and Napoleon Williams in Decatur as a community mouthpiece that exposed police brutality and other human rights violations in their communities. They were continually harassed by the FCC and the police, and Napoleon was arrested several times. It's the federal government. Hey, everybody, the government's here. Get our equipment. U.S. Marshals, okay? What do you want? You with Anna? Yeah. Open the door for a second. I want to talk to you. What do you want to talk to me about? I'm going to serve you an order here. Okay. And what we're going to do is, is be seizing all your uh, radio equipment. Okay. What all so, that include? Well, it'll say in the order. So go on in, go on in, come on in and have a seat. For other micro-broadcasters, the motivations were less political and had more to do with the fact that radio in the 70s and 80s had gotten so commercial that it had sucked all the fun out of it for those who had grown up with rock radio in the 60s. One of those microbroadcasters was Hank Hayes. From the 1970s through the 90s, Hank and his partner, Jim Nasium, operated a number of unlicensed pirate stations out of New York City. They were literally kids when they started. Jim was in ninth grade and Hank was in sixth. And Jim discovered that by tweaking the settings inside a normal transistor radio, he could turn it from a receiving device into a transmitter. He called his neighbor Hank and told him to turn on his radio at a certain time and that he would play Penny Lane by the Beatles. As soon as Hank heard the song, he knew that he had to get into this as well, and Hank and Jim launched a 30-year career as partners in radio crime. Over the years, they've been busted by the FCC five times, but always managed to reappear on the air somewhere else on the dial. In 1996, they were part of an alliance of pirates called Radio New York International, or RNI, that set up a station on a ship 
the Sarah anchored in international waters four miles off the coast of New York, outside the FCC's jurisdiction. There's a new rock station in town. Well, not really in town, really in the water. And it may be illegal. It's a pirate radio station, four and a half miles off Long Beach, Long Island. They say they're in international waters, but international waters begin 12 miles out, and as I say, they're only four and a half miles. The Buccaneer broadcasters are on an old freighter called Sarah. They call themselves RNI, Radio New York International, 103.1 FM, 1620 AM, on the air tonight after 7 PM. If they're illegal, though, the Coast Guard and the FCC might just pull down their Jolly Roger and rather quickly at that. RNI was shut down after only five days on the air and their equipment destroyed, despite the fact that they were operating legally. I spoke to Hank on the phone about the initial motivations he had for getting into pirate radio. Well, let's put it this way. In the very beginning, we had WABC and all those great DJs, and we had WMCA, which was a great station that had more of a local flavor. And we had the Beatles. We had rock and roll. We had the 60s rock and roll revolution, and that just to us was the way it was. We didn't realize it was temporary, and we didn't realize it was special, and that it was going to go away. And when we um, started playing on the radio, we emulated that. And then all of a sudden, in the mid-'70s, that went away. And you had disco come in, which was fine. You know, it's still popular music, which is what we kind of like. But what you had as far as radio goes is you had the emphasis on the DJ not talking. And we liked the DJ. What happened was we said, well, if we can't get it, at, we can't get it anymore, we're going to do it ourselves. And that's exactly what we did. I also wanted to talk to current pirates on the airwaves, but they were nearly impossible to find. They don't want to be found, because if I find them, then the FCC can too. But could it also be that there simply aren't as many of them anymore? Unable to find a current pirate, I looked instead for someone who was on public record as being recently shut down by the FCC for radio piracy, and I found Andre Eline. Andre isn't a broadcaster himself, but hosted a low-power transmitter in his apartment for a friend of his brother's who ran a pirate station in Brooklyn. Um, my brother was involved in uh, the pirate radio station. Um, he had a friend who had a transmitter, and so they would move all around Brooklyn with this transmitter. Um, my brother got involved very briefly he found um, he, he found this guy because they partied together or whatever, and he, uh, being a DJ, was willing to participate in the station. So they, they came to me because I lived in a building that had a 10 story, and I could get roof access. And so we <laughs> we uh, discussed it. Um, the guy explained to me that it was pirate radio station. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll give it a whirl. I asked him what would be the penalties or what would be the situation. Uh, he basically explained that it was not necessarily something that was a big deal, so to speak. After anything, they would just come and they'd ask you to just take it down and you would, you know, move on. Andre and Hank are generations apart and there's a world of difference in their stories. Hank was a pirate radio DJ for 30 years and Andre hosted a transmitter in his apartment for four days. Despite Hank's longevity, he never actually had to pay a fine, and yet Andre was fined $10,000 for his role. And they both ran into trouble with FCC agents who seemed to each of them to be difficult, if not vindictive. 
So my girlfriend didn't let them in, which is probably a, a huge bone of contention with them and one of the reasons I believe that they came after us because she kind of just stood her ground and, you know, they didn't present proper credentials and they just kind of wanted to try to bully her was her kind of feeling about it. So she just didn't feel comfortable and she didn't let them in. After I spoke to them, they were like, well, you know, you didn't, they didn't let us in. And the guy was kind of like yelling at me. He's like, I could find you. And yeah, he basically just kept itch- issuing threats and talking about the full extent of the law. We could go to jail and all this stuff. So, you know. How would you characterize the FCC's attitude towards you? You talk a little bit about this. Would you say that they were arrogant? Um, over the top, um, you know, they're, they're all powerful agency, so they want to put the hammer down. Um, you know, I mean, I, I really feel like I could have had a slap on the hand. I mean, because from my answer, I told the truth about what happened. Um, so the idea that they would find me $10,000 uh, to me is absolutely ridiculous. I think the attitude was kind of like to be a bully. Yeah, it's absolutely made an example of. I mean, there are people out here who are who have been doing uh, pirate radio and ducking and dodging, and in some cases they've been found, and I know for a fact they didn't get any $10,000 fine. Unlike Andre, veteran pirate Hank Hayes never paid a dime to the FCC, but he also got the sense that for the FCC, shutting down his radio station was a personal vendetta. Well, in the movie, Pump Up the Volume, you have the villain, which is the FCC agent. Well, that is based on a real-life FCC agent. And he busted us. He was the assistant uh, agent when the very first time the FCC showed up at Jim's house and took us off the air on WCPR. You had... um, he had two FCC agents, and I got into an argument with him while he was while he was taking us off the air. And he held such a grudge in his life that no matter what we did, that one particular agent made it his life's goal to take us off the air. And that includes the ship. He led the way. He was on the bow of the Coast Guard cutter, you know pointing towards towards the Sarah, you know, he was out there saying, let's go, and he, he brought the marshals to the house with guns drawn. When we did sit down with him after the 1989 bust, you know, we managed to talk to him and uh, get some of our equipment back. You know, he said, you, you just, uh, anytime you guys go on the air without a license, I'm coming to get you, even if I retire. I mean, he told us he'll come out of retirement to come and take us off the air if we ever broadcast illegally. Yeah. And I just have to assume it's because I argued with him that first time. Think about the fact that when we went on the air on a ship outside of the territorial waters of the United States in international water, but this did not stop Judah from coming out on a Coast Guard cutter and taking that, taking that ship and ta- literally taking an axe. I mean, he destroyed the equipment. So I asked both of them whether they thought actually getting licensed might have been a realistic alternative to pirate radio. Not personally, not just myself and Jim, you know, being, you know, young, young kids, basically teenagers, you know, we didn't have the means and uh, to do anything like that on our own. But as a group with the same people that we uh, that we associated with, the, the, the thing is that the whole reason we did it on a ship in international waters was because that was the only choice the FCC left us when we tried to go legit. 
and we found that there could be a radio station, uh, there could be a license granted on Long Island at 103.1 FM, and it was rejected by the FCC. The reason they gave is because it would cause interference to a station that was up in Westchester County on the same frequency. We were within 50 feet. If we could get the transmitter 50 feet further away, they would grant us the construction permit. But 50 feet further away was 50 feet into the ocean. We tried. We tried to do what they told us to do. Well, I talked about that with them. I talked about how, how would you become a licensed radio operator. And from my understanding through the conversation, it was price prohibitive. It was, I don't remember the exact figures, but it was a good, probably probably double the fine. In just to start one, it's probably like $20,000, $30,000. I remember the transmitter was $11,000 alone. Building a station over 100 watts is price prohibitive. But that's just one of the roadblocks that has kept low-power radio operators from legitimately operating their own stations. For the past 10 years, communities, pirates, and low-power radio advocacy groups have been pushing the FCC to open up the airwaves to smaller operations. And in December of 2010, Congress passed the Local Community Radio Act, or LCRA, which is designed to allow nonprofit organizations that want to operate community stations at under 100 watts. I spoke with Brandy Doyle, policy director at Prometheus Radio, a low-power advocacy group in Philadelphia, to give me the breakdown on the LCRA. Low-power radio is small, non-commercial, non-profit, local radio. These stations are 100 watts or less, and they are... <clears throat> that means they can reach, um, in most cases, uh, a radius of three to five miles, sometimes more. And because of that size and because of their um, their low power, they're inexpensive to operate. They reach um, really a neighborhood or um, one section of a city. And so because of that, they're really great for organizing locally. They're inexpensive enough to be run by organizations that, that aren't just... Um, you know, broadcast networks, their their uh, nonprofits, their community groups, their community colleges, their emergency responders. So um, oftentimes it puts uh, the power of the airwaves in the hands of communities and groups that otherwise wouldn't have access. Although this is something that radio pirates and DIY broadcasters have been asking for, is this really going to allow microbroadcasters access to the airwaves? The answer, if you live in an urban market like New York City, is probably not. You're right that the the bigger the city, the scarcer the spectrum. So it may be that there there won't be good opportunities in the very top markets, um, you know, New York, LA, Chicago, these are the, the very top markets. And, and in those very largest cities, the top five or 10 largest cities, we may not see opportunities. Outside of those very top markets, we do anticipate that they'll have, there'll be opportunities right in, right downtown in, in many cities. But um, a lot of that is to be determined by the FCC's implementation of the Local Community Radio Act, which is happening now. So there's um, a couple of rulemaking procedures at the FCC that will determine where stations can be located. And so we're working very hard to influence that process and to make sure that there's as many stations as possible. I also spoke with Candace Clement, Outreach Manager at Free Press, a media advocacy group based in New England, and she agreed with Doyle that a large urban markets like New York might be out of luck when it comes to finding space in the frequency spectrum for smaller community radio stations. Unfortunately for a city like New York, it's not very likely that there's going to be any space on the dial, but you know, in many other major cities like in Atlanta or um, you know, many of the cities in Ohio, it 
finally opens up a possibility for these kind of stations to go on the air. And to apply, you have to be a nonprofit organization. Let's let's circle back for a second to this question of spectrum space. I've heard basically two points of view, and one is that spectrum space is a very real concern, that there actually is a limited amount of space um, on the radio spectrum. And then there are other pirate radio microbroadcasting advocates who say that that is actually something that's a concept that's that's not necessarily made up, but blown out of proportion by the FCC. And if you're doing a one to five watt transmission, then there are easily ways to, to fit into that, into the spectrum. Personally, I don't think it's as much of a problem as it was when, say, these rules were initially created. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a one to five watt station serving one community, and then you, you know, hop over to the border and there's a different one serving the next. I think what you have in a city like New York is just a lot of entrenched power to some extent. You know, the way that we've gotten very used to the way that things are, which is that these people have these licenses and that's it. And there should be mechanisms to take those licenses away if these stations aren't serving the community. But the way that license review or license review processes have gone at the FCC, it's just like rubber stamping. So these stations do have to apply to renew their license, and they basically just fill out a form, and the FCC's like, cool, nice work here. Keep broadcasting. So while the price may have come down for those who want to operate a low-power station in their community, other obstacles have arisen. We've seen that in large markets like New York City, the LCRA may be irrelevant to begin with since New York has virtually no spectrum space available. For others, getting in line with the eligibility requirements might prove difficult to those that DIY practitioners used to doing things by the seat of their proverbial pants. Looking at it, I mean, I understand that you have to be a, a nonprofit. Um, you have to be right. you have to be fairly organized, more organized than most microbroadcasters or DIY radio practitioners have kind of historically been. You know, it's circling back again to Occupy Wall Street. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a movement like that, which was in some ways very spontaneous, sort of in the grand scheme right. of things, you know, would never have had an opportunity to, to set up any kind of micro-broadcasting. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it, I guess the way to get around something like that, you know, is to find um, a nonprofit group that is working with Occupy that would want to be the license holder, you know. But again, it just comes back to that same problem in New York, which is like... There's not going to be any space on the dial for any new stations, which is really unfortunate because New York is also an area that I think needs it. Every neighborhood is so different. But it's really amazing the, the, on the opposing side, like how many people care about this. Like we were talking earlier about whether or not there was really even an interest in radio. And for us and for our activists, we have like, you know, half a million members in our organization. And LPFM was always one of those things that they just cared so passionately about and I think it really speaks to how much people want something like that like they want to have local community radio they want to have a place where like if they wanted to have a radio show they could go and they could be involved if they wanted to get news and information they could actually get it so I th- and I think that the pirate radio is very similar like people do pirate broadcasts because they, they see a need that's not being met. They might not see that they're doing it that way, but that's why they, that is ultimately why they're doing it. They're doing that because, you know, something doesn't exist and they're making it exist because it's, it's not there. You're talking about like 
subcultures and DIY and stuff like that. I mean, like I, you know, I got involved in this stuff because I'm a musician and like community radio, public access, like these are the places where like independent musicians and like this whole sort of DIY community can go and actually like have, you know, we can have a radio station that'll play our music. We have a place where we can go and talk to people. Like it's just, that doesn't exist. I don't think without that. So what's an aspiring micro broadcaster in New York City to do short of becoming a pirate and risking the kinds of harassment experienced by Hank and Andre? Is it possible that the internet could fill in the gap left by the absence of local community radio? I asked Candace Clement what she sees as the principal difference between the two media and whether the availability of the internet as a broadcast medium is causing a waning of interest in radio. I think a lot of people felt like they had run out of options when it came to radio. Like, you know, you'd hear a lot of people complain about how you turn the radio on and there's nothing but the same thing over and over and over again. And that's really directly a result of the fact that you have the same station owners owning everything and they're just playing the same things over and over and over again. So I think a lot of people have basically bailed to some extent because they, they weren't getting what they wanted and you could get that kind of stuff online. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that you can't get online too. You know, like you're not, you're not really guaranteed an audience in the way that you are when you're broadcasting. Like if you're, if you have a station and you're broadcasting and somebody's flipping through the dial, like they, they will get listeners. It's much more challenging to find, you know, like local, locally based internet radio per se. And there's a couple other things to consider too, you know, like more and more people are moving away from, I think, using the internet necessarily on like at home on the desktop, you're using it on a mobile basis. If you're using it mobily and you're streaming, there's all sorts of data caps, which you know, insert a whole different pricing model, whereas broadcast radio is totally free. You just have to get yourself a radio, and then you're you're in, and you're all set. You're good. This made me think that perhaps we should take a step back and ask ourselves whether the internet, an inherently non-local medium, is capable of filling a local community need at all. Brandy Doyle is not so sure it is. What radio has to offer that other mediums or other media don't? It's a, there's a sense of intimacy with radio, and there's a sense of um, the local. And I think that eventually it may be that internet radio can fill that gap. And maybe in the future, there will be um, more of a local focused internet. And I think that there's there's moves in that direction, but we haven't really seen it. We haven't seen much local news on the internet and we haven't seen much local culture on the internet in terms of music, in terms of people feeling connected to their neighborhoods. And in a, in a sort of globalized moment when people are really yearning for that local and they're lo- looking for local food and local businesses and local artists um, and a sense of being part of a local community at a time when that you know has been wiped out. Local radio has something to offer that the internet just doesn't at this time. Katrina Cass disagrees. Katrina is one of the founders of Bbox Radio in Brooklyn, an internet radio station that operates out of a 160 square foot shipping container in DeKalb Market at the intersection of several different Brooklyn neighborhoods. Good evening, Brooklyn. You're listening to DJ Pete Heat, live from downtown Brooklyn. This is House Rules on Bbox Radio. To cast, the issues are also about resources and accessibility for the producers as well as the listeners. I actually look at the internet presence more about accessibility. You know, people are used to, um, or at least they're becoming used to, accessing content 
in the way they want it. I mean, the great thing about the internet is it, it, it can be on demand. It can be, you know, on your phone when you're walking around, or it can be at your house on your computer, or you can't, you know, it's, it's about accessibility. So even though um, we do get listeners from all around the world, um, uh, so far, the, the focus has still been here locally in you know the greater New York area um, that we're seeing people tune in. But also, uh, I think there is going to be uh, an audience that will be interested in what's happening locally here in Brooklyn. Um, you know, I think you know people in Mississippi and people in California. I mean, they're they they're interested in what's happening in Brooklyn. There's you know things that are different, and um, you might not be seeing that on you know the the larger national networks. And so it's a good opportunity to tune in. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to just a, a, a medium to share content. That, I think that's what it really came down to. There was low startup costs. It, it seemed, you know, we, we had a path to where we could see it, it happening. Um, and I think that's why we chose the internet route. Right, that's interesting. I mean, my next question as written was actually, you know, do you see the internet as a competing or a complementary technology? And after hearing your description, it almost sounds like it's an, a necessary alternative because, it, it, especially in, in, a, in a market like New York, there's just not a lot of spectrum space. Yeah, I mean, totally. Uh, and, you know, and again, it's in addition just to the, the spectrum, I mean, there's also, you know, the startup costs. And so we were, we were trying to do, we were trying to go from zero to something very quickly. And really all we had was a, a small stipend that pretty much covered, you know, the insurance for, for the box. And then everything else was coming out of our pocket. So if we went to go try and get, you know, some sort of transmitter for a space that doesn't even, you know, exist for us, it, it just didn't make any sense. A web server is like a hundred bucks a year at most. And, you know, it's, it's very uh, reasonable. Uh, to get started. Hank Hayes, our veteran radio pirate, has also made the move to the internet. I asked him why he switched from one medium to the other. In the very beginning of internet radio, audio streaming over the internet, it kind of had the sound quality of listening to a shortwave station. That the audio coming in, I forget what bit rate it was, but it was so low that it, it, it sounded like a shortwave station, you know, very uh, in the distance, during the time when it was like shortwave, I realized, hey, this could be done. If the, if this can be done live, it it could be the answer to uh, to our prayers right now because it's a, it's legal, and we can promote it and 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 uh, and have a good time, and that's exactly what happened. And I think now we have more listeners than we would ever have. Uh, if we were to just go back on the air as a, as a pirate over the airwaves right now. But what about this concept of discoverability on the radio? And by that, I mean the ability to happen upon different programming by physically flipping through the dial. It seemed to me that this was one of the features of radio that the internet couldn't reproduce, as the internet is all about targeted searching and finding exactly what you're after. Hank says he finds this element of discoverability on the internet as well. I was chatting with one of my new friends that I made online, you know, through the show. And I just asked him, uh, how did you find us? Because I always want to know that. And back in the old days, people would say, well, I was just tuning around the dial. Well, this, this one guy told us that he clicked on our show and something that he heard that goes back to the the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 1950s that we still do, that we still use is what grabbed his attention and made him say, oh, let me, 
this is interesting. I'm hearing something interesting. I want to know what this. I'm going to stay with this and come back. And what that was is the reverb that we have on our show. When we used it on the air, and the reason why radio stations back in the day would use reverb is because of when you're listening on AM, when you're listening from far away, the signal kind of fades in and fades out. And they found that that reverb makes it a little easier for people to hear for people to hear what's going on. Well, we like the reverb just because it's part of what we like. It's part of the old, old-fashioned radio that we do. So we always had reverb on our voices, and we basically have reverb on everything on our show. Well, this reverb grabbed the attention of <laughs> grabs the attention of people because it's different. They may have never heard it before. For Cass, the physical location of B-Box, right in the middle of a busy market in downtown Brooklyn, is the key to her station's discoverability. What I think makes us different from a, a lot of internet radio stations is the fact that we are here at the market. And so that discoverability that you're talking about, I think we actually get in some ways through our physical location. So, you know, you may not be uh, just, you know, flip, you know, searching on, Googling and, and stumble upon us, but um, I think, you know, we really do get quite a bit of traffic and we've actually gotten quite a few volunteers and even show, uh, show hosts coming, just stumbling through the market and, and finding out about us. So I think, you know, that's our discoverability aspect. So for those of us who do live in large urban markets like New York City, who don't have the expertise, time, or patience to start a nonprofit, or who simply can't afford a transmitter, much less a $10,000 fine, is internet broadcasting the way to go? Is this the future of radio? Andrea Lane thinks it is. The fact that you can get the actual radio stations on the internet as well makes it a lot easier for a lot of people because they're able to just stream straight to their phone or stream straight to their computer and listen to the radio like that. Um, it's easier, it seems, to get fo a following that's, that's not necessarily local, which is one of the drawbacks, I think, of, inter of traditional radio. You, you know, you can have an audience member who is in Alaska. And, he, you know, people around the world can tune in to your radio station. So I think it's one of the reasons that the, the numbers of people who actually listen to radio go down. The only time I listen to radio is when I'm in a car. I also asked Hank Hayes what advice he would give to an enterprising person in New York City with an interest in DIY radio. Well, I would, I would advise them. I, maybe advise is too strong a word. I would prefer or I would... I would think it would be better if they would get the um, get the interest and get the bug by by actually broadcasting over the air, you know, with a transmitter, because there's something special about that. And I, you know, it happened to me. It happened to to Jim, where you're hearing, you know, your friend or your station over the air. It's it's, a, it's kind of a magical thing, you know. If they can have that experience, I would I would like to think that they can have that that same interest and that same experience. But then, right away, get into the internet, get on the internet and do it that way because you can then bring, I think you can get a lot more results on the internet and you can you know, make it bigger than you possibly could. It's kind of sad though, you know, knowing, thinking that the micro-broadcasting is, is gonna basically be uh, secondary. You know, you, you could be doing your main show on the internet and yet still have a signal on the air that someone nearby could listen to, you know, right. but it's almost, it's almost an afterthought. But personally, I think that would be a good way. Uh, that, that's the advice that I would give. Personally, I'm still not convinced that the internet is a viable substitute for radio. 
What you might gain in reach and convenience for the producers, you lose in the kinds of people you reach. A computer costs $1,000 and a radio costs five. You can carry a battery-powered radio with you outside at demonstrations like Occupy Wall Street, and microbroadcasters can reach you wherever you are, whether or not you have Wi-Fi or a 3G connection or a $600 smartphone. In the rest of the country, and especially in rural America, we may be about to witness something like a revolution in microbroadcasting, once stations empowered by the local community radio act get up and running. Maybe this new state of affairs will demonstrate that low-power broadcasting isn't a privilege we should have to pay for, but the right of everyone to use public airwaves to speak freely. A requirement of the 1984 Cable Communications Act required that cable TV companies make channels available for community access. Perhaps something like this will eventually happen in radio instead of microbroadcasters having to chew on the crumbs left over by commercial broadcasters in the NAB. Certainly a portion of the spectrum should be portioned off to community endeavors. In the meantime, until we have such things come to pass, and as long as radio exists as a medium, there will be pirates on the airwaves. Interrupting all programs. This is Radio Clash on Pirate Satellite. Orbiting your living room, cashing in the Bill of Rights. Cumin army surplus, or a few...